Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the Investment News Podcast. I'm Jeff Benjamin, co-hosting with Bruce Kelly, and we are talking today with Ben Carlson, Director of Institutional Asset Management at Ritholtz. I've been listening to Ben's own podcast, Portfolio Rescue, lately, and uh, it's really good stuff, by the way. Something that they talked about recently related to uh, the topic of going 100% equities in your portfolio. And there's all kinds of nuance there, and we're going to get into a lot of that. I want to first of all recognize our sponsor, LPL Financial. In Ben's podcast, there was a lot of talk about the pros and cons of going all equity. All equity? Jeff, <laughs> come on. Is this pure craziness? Have we allowed a madman on the podcast, Jeff? Come on. I think it's, we know where uh, Bruce stands here. I don't I don't know if Ben is is pro all equity, but he definitely has uh, some cool perspectives on it. It's something that I've kind of looked at for a long huh. time. I, I'm just going to start by saying this to you, Ben. If if you look at the long term, and I'm talking way back of something like the S and P 500 or the Dow Jones Industrial Average, it has a natural upward bias just because money going in. And I I threw it out there on Twitter a week or so ago about. It kind of tur- stirring the pot a little bit, but if you know that the long-term track record of stocks is positive, it, would it be fiduciary, fiduciarily responsible to allocate your clients into anything but equities? So let's let's start right there, Ben, with you telling us the kind of the backstory on this this whole idea of of an all equity portfolio. I think it came from one of your listeners, right? Yeah, a few people asked about this and and there was a couple different questions. One of them said, hey, should I have all stocks when I'm young? And then as I get older, maybe when I'm 50 or 60, then I add some bonds. And another person said, I think it's crazy to not be in all stocks even when you're retired because why not just earn the the growth from the stock market and then the dividends each year and, and have that price appreciation and you grow your principal. And I can understand both of those sentiments. I also am very pro-diversification. And I think if, if you just want to have a long-term outlook and you say, okay, the stock market is the best returning asset class that there is, why would I own anything else? I can kind of come around to that idea. I also come around to the idea that the whole point of diversification is we have no idea what's going to happen in the future. So especially when you're retired and you have, you, you could just have bad luck, okay? So I looked at this in in some more detail, like how long does it take from the peak of a market and then you have a bear market and then how, do you, how long does it take to make your money back? And the longest one in, in modern history, going back to the World War II, so this doesn't even count like the Great Depression, is something like 67 months. And that was in the 70s that it took where you peaked, you had this huge 50% crash, and then it took that long to get back to all-time highs again. So the whole point of if you knew what was going to happen in the future and you knew that you're going to retire in a bull market and things were going to be fine for 20 or 30 years and you weren't going to have a bunch of pullbacks right away, you'd be fine keeping all your money in stocks. But you don't know if you're going to get a bear market right at the outset of your retirement and have bad luck. And then you're selling into a down market that could potentially hurt your probabilities for future returns because you were forced to sell into the teeth of a bear market. So I think the whole point of keeping some sort of fixed income or cash, especially in retirement, is that you just don't have nearly as much time to, to make up and you don't have enough time to save money like young people do who should hope for a bear market. So it's it's really more of a diversification, I think, is a is a is a risk management strategy more than it is a return enhancer. Right. That's why I knew my 
my question on Twitter was, like I said, kind of stirring the pot. Uh, and I did get some snarky responses, as I anticipated. But you, if you're just looking at performance, I remember this was, again, on, on Twitter. Uh, this was a month or so ago when somebody was talking about they had a new client, 19 years old. And this advisor was throwing it out there for feedback from other advisors saying, um, this this client is is like 19 years old, came into a bunch of money, and she is really risk-averse. How does he he get this client you know, exposed to the market. And so he said he's going like 50% stocks, 50% bonds. I'm thinking 19 years old with a lot of money. So they don't need to like tap into that for probably a long, long time. To me, it's like, how do you not bend over backwards to get that person in the equity markets? I do agree, especially for young people. The the default probably should be close to 100% equities. The problem there is there's, there's two different things that kind of make up your your risk profile, right? You have your ability to take risk. And if you're a young person, you have the ability to take a lot of risk because you have your biggest asset as a young person is human capital, right? How much you're going to be making in the future that gives you future powers for saving and earning more. You have the ability to wait out of bear market and, and you should get on your hands and knees and pray for one because it means buying at lower prices and lower valuations and all that good stuff. But if you don't have the ability to take risk, if you're someone who just cannot be invested in the stock market because you worry about it all the time and you can't handle volatility and it's going to make you go crazy and it's going to make you sell out at the wrong time, then holding some bonds actually makes sense, even though from a textbook perspective, it it seems illogical. So I think depending on the emotional makeup of the person, they might need a 50-50 portfolio just until they get used to the stock market because you can't really teach someone about what it's like to live through a bear market and see your money fall on your life savings get chopped in half potentially until you actually go through it. And so I think a lot of people, sure, you can look at it on the spreadsheet and say, I, I would have held through that that bear market fine. I would have kept buying. You don't know that until you've actually lived through it. What do you think, Bruce? Are you, are you I, I take it you're not 100% equities. Uh, no, I'm not, but I'm a majority equities, you know? Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm kind of, because <laughs> of my financial picture, you know, I'm kind of, I have to, you know, I was dumb and that I had my kids when I was like 40 or 41 years old or something. So I'm trying to save for retire and for college at the same time, save for retirement and have college savings at the same time. And you really got to look at equities when you're in that position as the thing that can get you over the top. I've got most of my money at Vanguard in an IRA and I get these little announcements, these little like coaching tips unsolicited all the time from Vanguard saying, you know, I don't have enough fixed income exposure. <laughs> um, but I, you know, I'm constantly, you know, I'm not constantly, but I, I try and, you know, tweak my portfolio about once a year to, to bring things back into the balance that I'm looking for. And I just based on some of the things that I've learned, I might've been a little bit over diversified on the equity side, but I'm not going to use last year as an example for bonds because obviously it was a it was a it was an anomaly right. of sorts. But I, I understand what you're saying. What was some of the feedback that you you were getting? Because uh, that was all over Twitter. I think even a couple of trade pubs wrote articles on that, right? Yeah, that, I mean there there were a handful of people who said who actually agreed and said, "No, I have all my money in stocks, and I'm fine with that." Whereas other people were more like Bruce and said, "No, you're nuts if you think that way." And so I think it it depends. I do think your 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 question about adding more bonds over time—that's the really hard one for people—is well, when do I make that 
that decision? When do I make that that glide path? Do I start when I'm 50 years old? Do I wait till I'm closer to retirement? Do I do I slowly so that that's the thing that there is no really good handbook. I guess you could look at kind of what target date retirement funds do where they slowly you know move uh you know a few percentage points each year in bonds and you could do it it's almost like dollar cost averaging the opposite way. That's the hard one for people I think they they say yeah, I'm fine while I'm young and while I'm saving to be in stocks, but then I know at a certain point I have to de-risk a little bit because then it goes from wealth accumulation to wealth preservation. But what is what is the path there? When do I do it? Do I do it all at once? Do I do it slowly? And so I think that's the challenge for a lot of people is knowing how to do that and when to do that. Yeah, I, I know on your podcast you referenced uh, Bogle a few times, who has who who preached the I'm going to kind of paraphrase, but that the the fixed income portion of fixed income weighting should be equal to your age, right? Yes, that, that's not a bad rule. And so I, I've actually seen other people who say, if you want to get more aggressive, you take the Bogle rule and you subtract 10 from it or something like that. So you can maybe hold some more stocks. But I, I think the point probably is to have some sort of rule in place where you say, each year, I'm going to do 1% or 2%. Or, or I think just even if that rule is not perfect, and it, it's not perfect, because some people think that if you have your age in bonds, and you're, you know, 35 and you have 35% in bonds and you still have a few decades to retirement that you're being overly conservative. But I think as long as you have that that sort of rule of thumb as something to guide you where you're not just guessing, I think that's the whole point of it is that my my whole ethos is even a suboptimal plan is better than no plan at all. What do you see at Ritholtz with the, you know, you guys obviously it's a giant firm, lots of clients are you at the at the individual investor level or at the household level do you find there's a there's a pattern that you can recognize or do most people favor something some semblance of 60/40 well i think that question is a lot easier to answer today than it was like 24 months ago because 24 months ago when rates were basically nothing and you could earn 1 to 2% in bonds people were thinking listen I know that I have to accept some sort of volatility to keep up my standard of living, and bonds are not going to cut it. And this is even before inflation reared its ugly head, right? People were saying, if I'm earning 1% in bonds, I know that I'm going to fall behind, even if inflation is 2%. So I'm going to have to learn to accept some more equity volatility. And so maybe uh, someone who would have been in a 60-40 before would have gone to a 70-30 or an 80-20, and they didn't necessarily want to do that. Like they, they, They wanted the comfort of bonds because they'd made... They've made seven figures selling a business or something. They've worked their whole life for it and saved, and now they they don't want it to go away. Like that's the big thing for most retirees is is just like don't screw this up, right? Don't make a big mistake. Don't take too much risk. And so a lot of people understand the the job that a bond can do. And so now that rates are four or five percent, especially on the short end, people are people love that. It's it actually makes their lives a lot easier because they can have this thing where they're finally earning some yield. And they're they're more willing to be in, in that more you know balanced 60, 60, 40, 70, 30 portfolio because the the bond piece is actually picking up the slack a little bit even though twenty twenty two was such a challenging year for bonds but I think that that's for a lot of people that's sunk costs they understand it happened rates went up really fast but now they finally have that piece in their portfolio that makes that decision a lot easier because for years people were saying. I need to move out on the risk curve in some way. What's the easiest way to do it? And there really wasn't a good answer. On the equity side, what would you see as a sort of properly diversified portfolio in equities right now? I do think that especially if you're going to be 
100% in equities. You could say, listen, I'm, I believe in the US stock market. It's the biggest market in the world. That It makes up 60% of the world global markets. And, you know, I don't know, 40% of the revenues come from overseas or something. It's, it's the biggest, most diverse stock market in the world. That's all I'm going to own. I'm going to own the Vanguard Total Stock Market Index Fund and call it a day. And, and I wouldn't really blame someone for doing that. I do think, however, if you add some international stocks in there and add some maybe uh, different market caps in there, so small caps or mid caps or some sort of factor strategies, whether that's quality or value or momentum, I, I don't think that you you go into those changes with the mindset that, oh, it's I'm going to outperform. I'm going to, I'm going to get all this alpha and it's going to be great. And I'm going to do better than the stock market. I, I don't think that's as easy as, as it might have been in the past. I think you go into that mindset if you're going to be more diversified within stocks to think, you know, none of these strategies work all the time, right? I, I know we had this 10-year period where the S&P 500 pretty much outperformed everything else, right? It was large growth stocks, did better than everything, and it seemed you you felt like an idiot for owning anything else. And, and 2022 was a good reminder that, that that's not always the case. There was a lot of other parts of the market that did a lot better in an environment that had higher rates and and higher inflation and these sorts of things. So I think that's the point of diversifying within equity strategies is that if you have a period where you have a lost decade in, in your style of investing, you're not concentrated in that one piece. Because even the U.S. stock market had a lost decade from you know 2000 to 2009. It, it was down 10% in total or something. But small cap stocks did good and REITs did good and emerging markets did good and, and all these things that have performed, you know, they've underperformed lately, but they did really well in that lost decade. So I think that's the whole idea, again, back to the diversification thing is that you take the you take the ability to hit a home run off the plate, but you also kind of avoid striking out as well. What about, uh, you mentioned the Vanguard uh, total stock market index. Uh, that's the entire world, right? VTI, I think, is the ticker on that fund? Well, VTI is the total US, and then I think VT is the world one. So, yeah, so you could own the entire global stock market in one fund if you wanted for a handful of pennies on the dollar. And uh, not a not a bad deal. Market volatility can have a dramatic impact on clients, but this also represents an opportunity. As a wealth management partner, LPL Financial helps advisors and institutions implement more robust financial planning strategies with clients. Dr. Jeffrey Roach, chief economist at LPL Research, shares his insights on the markets and how financial professionals can deepen their relationships with clients and help them feel more prepared. I think one of the things uh, it, it's helpful to think about is, you know, this is this is a long-term scenario. It's about having a plan, executing the plan, sticking with the plan, not, you know, trying to change plans midstream, you know, looking about long-term, long-term opportunities, long-term goals. To hear the rest of the conversation and learn more about planning for the year ahead, visit the LPL Financial Newsroom at lpl.com slash newsroom. Bruce Kelly, what do you have for uh, Mr. Carlson? Ben, again, thanks for your time. Um, and it's interesting, you know, you said you joined uh, Ritholtz back in 2015, right? So I was at a uh, uh, industry meeting earlier this week, and I hadn't been out, I hadn't traveled at all during the pandemic. So it was my first time kind of out and, and uh, seeing people and everything like that um, outside of New York. And it was it was really fascinating. It was in Palm Springs, California, which is a very nice place, of course. And it was the Financial Services Institute, which is a big trade organization lobbying group for independent, so-called independent broker dealers. Not you guys. You guys are an RIA. 
But it was very evident there, um, and this is why I mentioned 2015, that, it, you know, and you're an asset allocation, talking about asset allocation and the like, I could just smell in the room <laughs> the brokerage industry getting ready for a big push into alts, you know? And again, it's like, you remember managed futures back in, I don't know, Jeff, when was that? 2010, 2011, 2012, there was this big industry, you know, push, a lot of white papers, a lot of people going out and talking about, you got to have managed futures, you got to have managed futures. And now it seems like we're getting the alts wagon, um, uh, uh, the engine turning on this thing again. Do you have any sense of that or, or where alts are in the, in, in your asset allocation as we talk about stocks and bonds and the like? I definitely remember the managed futures thing because they did amazing in 20, in 2008. And it was basically the only strategy that right. did well besides bonds back then. And so, yeah, the, the, the funny thing is, is that the alts make a huge push after a bad year for stocks, and last year it was bonds as well. <laughs> right. Usually bonds hold up okay, but but that's after they should have been in your portfolio anyways, is what you mean? Yeah, yeah and so you end up fighting the last war, unfortunately, yeah. and and that's when that's when these fund companies do their best marketing because they say, look, <laughs> if you would have just owned this, you would have done amazing. Right, right. Not not realizing that. Yeah, you're right. You should have. But had last it, year is over. Know. The, the 2023 is not going to be 2022. Yeah. So I do think a bad year in the stock market is always going to be good for fund managers who are trying to do something different. I think that the hardest part for alts, and, and it's the kind of thing because in, in a in a raging bull market, especially one like we had in the 2010s, where you had low interest rates too, because they they make money on the cash for some of those if you're shorting stuff, that it, it's you're never going to be able to keep up with a bull market. And so most people who get into them after a bear market end up getting out of them in a bull market because they, they just can't stand this thing, that this sore thumb in their portfolio that's just sticking out. So it's the kind of thing where you better understand the the risk and return profile of these things. And I think that's the hardest thing for alts for the majority of investors is that they don't understand. I mean, even if your advisor is doing it on your behalf, these things are so much harder to understand and explain to people. I, I mentioned that it was it was much harder to, to be, for people to be in bonds in the in the past you know few years. And what a lot of advisors were coming to us with is, what do we do with that middle piece? What sits in between stocks and bonds that we can do? And the problem is, anything that's going to give you a return that that is much better than bonds and close to stocks is probably going to have stock-like risk at some point. But the thing is, that risk could show up at inopportune times when the stock market is doing good. And then you look at it and you say, why am I owning this piece of junk? You know. So I think that's the hardest part is just anything that is going to be completely different. It could have uncorrelated returns, but it's going to be very a very hard sell to people unless you're trying to sell it right after a huge downturn in stocks when it looks the best. I like the notion of fighting the last war. But Jeff, do you remember that that big managed futures push by the industry back then or I mean we used to have the yeah. investment news alts conference, right? And there was always the managed futures um managers well, and there. Well, the managed futures like. had a good year last year again. So right. it, it, it's the kind of thing when when you have a big downtrend like that that kind of thing is going to do well. It's just, can you stick with it in the 10 right. years between or however long it's going to be? And that's the hard part for most people is, is a lot of people just cannot do that. Well, one thing that I thought was interesting about the, the push toward alts, and it, it's a lot of it's pegged to these, I think they're arbitrary calendar year measurements. Right. You know, from the stock market's perspective, it, it doesn't care if it's December 31st or January 1st. <laughs> uh, you know, publicly traded companies, they get measured that way. And I understand that. But the thing that hasn't changed a lot from last year is the fact that we're still dealing with inflation. 
We're still dealing with higher interest rates. We're still dealing with a real threat of recession. To me, these things still make a case for some diversification into uh, non-correlated assets or things that might be considered alternatives. Right, Ben, or no? I, I do think the, the whole point of the diversification, if you're going to go that far and diversify even further beyond stocks and bonds and different types of stocks and bonds, is you're thinking through different economic environments. And the one we had, you mentioned, with rising rates and rising inflation, we just haven't had that environment in like 40 years, right? And we, some, some of these strategies and some of these products and some of these you know, asset classes weren't even around back then, right? There, there was no <laughs> tips didn't exist back then. There was no high yield. You didn't have the opportunity to invest in REITs back then. So a lot of these things, we kind of had to think about how they will perform. You know, Bitcoin is a new one that people thought is going to be an inflation hedge. So a lot of these products had their first test. And one of the interesting ones to me, I think, actually is an in alternative asset that not many people do. I think tips are some form of alternative asset because they're so unique. And unfortunately, a lot of people learned in a last year, I got a ton of questions about this one. Why are my tips falling when inflation is raging? In, in 2022, this makes no sense. These things should be awesome. I saw inflation coming. I moved some money to tips and they did bad. And, and you kind of learned that they they acted more like bonds when rates were rising than they than they did like the inflation protection. But uh, I think a lot of these these products are getting their, their first test in something like this. And it, it's interesting to see what works and what doesn't. So what are you saying? Let's stick on tips for a minute there. What what how do you explain what happened to tips last year? And and is it are you saying that tips are just a it's it's just smoke and mirrors don't even mess around there? No, the the problem is rates rates got so low that you were you were essentially having a negative yield on tips because you know inflation and rates were so low and when rates went up, rates on tips essentially went from like negative two percent to positive two percent. Actually, you know tips look much more attractive today than they did going into 2022. And the problem is obviously because I said they they acted like bonds when rates rose. It's It was kind of the same thing is that rates were just so low on these tips that it was going to be hard to earn any money when when interest rates rose. And, and a lot of these these tips funds are also longer duration. And so anything with any duration last year got killed. That was the, the problem. I think you know these things had never been tested in a rising rate environment that rates rose so fast and so aggressively. And, and so I, I, one of the things with, with tips is that the rule of thumb is typically when they have, you know, two to three percent real yields, that's when they make sense as, as a bargain as opposed to, you know, they had negative two percent yields going into it. So unfortunately, the problem was is that those rates had just fallen too much. And so now, even if inflation is not nine percent anymore, it's it's three or four percent. If you're adding that on a two percent yield, tips look pretty attractive again. It's just, yeah, you had to deal with the, the bond component of it as opposed to the inflation component. That The inflation component is more of a long-term thing in tips as opposed to short-term. I think that's the problem for most people. Where, where are you on uh, high-yield bonds right now? That seems to be a hot area. I, I'm i of the opinion that high-yield bonds are probably more of a, a tactical thing than like a long-term play. And it's, it's not the kind of... Our whole thing is at our, our philosophy at our firm is that we like to take volatility we're paid to get it and we think that's in the stock market and bonds we like to keep things a, a little safer and less volatile and high yield can act like stocks at times but but obviously there, there are times when high yield spreads blow out where they can be very attractive so I, I don't think many advisors are very good at tactically trading in the fixed income market but I actually think that the 
the way the bond market is now and the way that rates are moving so fast, it, it probably makes sense to be a little more thoughtful about how you deploy to certain areas of the bond market and when you deploy to them. And you don't want to be going into high yield bonds as a recession is coming and those those spreads are going to blow out, right? Because then you're going to get crushed and you could see equity like losses. And, and that's not what you want if that's a piece of your fixed income portfolio. So I think you just have to be a little more considerate about how and when you allocate to these certain sectors of, of the bond market. What's your outlook on the recession? Are we, I mean, it, it, we've been talking about it forever, not you and I, but everybody. What's, uh, do you see it as, I, I just, with this, with the scenario that we're in right now, I, I just can't fathom how you avoid a recession. If you would have asked me this question 10 months ago, I would have said emphatically, yes, we're going into recession. The war in Ukraine had just started. Inflation was already at 7% before the war started. Then it immediately jumped to you know 9%. Energy prices went nuts. Food prices went nuts. And now I'm I'm actually not so sure because I, I can't believe how strong the labor market continues to be. And I think that might be our one saving grace if we did have a soft landing. The, the, the hard part is if inflation continues to fall, we're not going to know if it's falling because things are just normalizing or it's falling because we're going into a recession. So you could you could be a soft landing person or you could be a hard landing person and you're both going to be rooting for inflation to fall at this time, right? And so it's going to be hard to tell, I think. So you're right, the probability, I did a study a while ago where I looked at every time since 1940 that inflation has spiked to 5% or higher. How does it come down? And every time the only way that inflation was resolved was through a recession. There's never been a time where we've had inflation this high come down and it hasn't caused or led to a recession, uh, either from the Fed raising rates or, or the economy slowing or whatever. So history as your guide, you know, you have the inverted yield curve, all these things. If you're just looking at history, you'd say, of course, we're going to have a recession. But if you wanted to say that the pandemic screwed up every historical economic relationship and the labor market is as strong as it's been in a generation and People are still having an easy time finding a job. And could we potentially muddle through inflation falling and things just normalizing because the pandemic was really a really bizarre, shocking moment to the economy? You could potentially talk me into that. But the the so like the the analytical side of my brain says, no, of course we have to have a recession. The more emotional side of my brain looks at this situation and goes behaviorally, but what if we we could skirt through this? I, I think that there is still a possibility of that, even though it seemed very slight uh, last year. I have one more thing to ask you about before I, I pass it back over to Bruce and then we get to football. So uh, <laughs> that's our, that's our new thing, Ben. We're, we're, we're going to have a sports segment at the end of every episode. Um, but I, I warned you about that. So I hope I'm sure you did your homework. Um, the I'm working on some stuff right now. There's so many different ways to outsource asset management that it is increasingly in my perspective, becoming commoditized. I don't know how you guys do things there at Ritholtz, but um, what what are your thoughts on on a financial advisor of any size, but maybe generally a smaller size, an RIA uh, going to one of these TAMPs or another outsourcing type platform versus rolling up their sleeves and building client portfolios with stocks? I mean, most people still will go to some kind of funds for the bonds, but on the stock side. And these could just be model portfolios. We, we build our three models and uh, we put you into one of them and we tweak it accordingly. But what, what are your thoughts on that? Managing your own portfolio uh, versus outsourcing? 
I do think that it's it's never been easier to just do that on your own and create some some models and have some sort of rebalancing technology do that for you. I, I guess for the smaller advisors who who really just say, I want a hands-off, I don't want to do that, I, I do think the way that you add value is probably not through investment management. It is through financial planning and offering advice to people. That That's probably the way you're going to stand out because you're right. It, asset, there are people who do things differently. Some people include alts. Some people have different types of portfolios. Some people are tactical. Some people are strategic. There's all different ways to manage portfolios, and everyone thinks they have the, the, the best way to figure it out. There's probably a bunch of different ways you can successfully manage a portfolio. I do think that the the financial advice piece is something that people are realizing more and more, especially as they come to us that, oh, I, th- I thought I came to you because I needed someone to manage my portfolio. But what I really needed help with was insurance and estate planning and creating a financial plan and passing it along to the next generation. So all that financial planning stuff, I've learned over the years of working with our advisors that that stuff is way more important to 95% of the clients. Bruce? Yeah, Ben. Uh, I was just I thought that was a very interesting comment. You said, you know, we haven't had these similar kind of economic conditions, right? This kind of runaway inflation mode since the late 70s and early 80s, right? Uh, but we've had we had all these certain amount of products that didn't exist uh, heretofore. And I guess, um, and as Jeff knows, uh, you know, my, my focus on REITs, REITs were written and were part of the, the Reagan uh, overhaul of tax code in the 80s, right? That's when they were created, I believe. That sounds about right. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know if you could even have invested them in a product until maybe the early 90s. But yeah, I, th- I think the, the first REIT index goes back to like 1979 or something like that. But uh, but yeah, you're right. It, a lot of these, even something like... Well, the, t- the tax code changed, right? A lot in the yeah. in the 80s. And I think some of these things, REITs, business development companies and, and all that kind of stuff sprang out of that. And then Bush had another whack at the tax code again in the early 2000s, you know? I mean, I've heard people even say, like, private equity, a lot of higher net worth people are trying to get into something like that. That's the kind of strategy that's never really been through a persistently rising or higher interest rate environment. So so when, when you're I, looking I at this stuff, how does that, you know, fact uh, or set of facts affect your thinking when you're trying to come up with, you know, your asset allocation uh, of the moment, you know? Hey, we didn't have REITs 40 years ago, really, and we have them now. What should we do? How does that just affect how you look at your your job and the like? I, I do think that there you have to have a balance between looking at market history and, and allowing that to give you some sense of risk and return and, and the potential range of outcomes, but also thinking through, like, where do we stand in the present? And I think the bond market is a perfect example of that. Like I said, a few years ago, you had to go out in the risk curve and take a bunch of risk. And now it's easy to be in 30-day T-bills and earn 4 or 4.5%. So if you're not making some sort of switch there, if you're not trying to you know, do something like that for your clients there, I think you're not. So I think you have to figure out where the market's going. We're not the kind of firm that's going to try to like predict interest rates or, or pretend. Like there's a lot of right. macro people that are saying this is- You're this not is Morgan Stanley. Exactly. Yeah, we're, we're yeah. PIMCO. We're in a new regime of higher rates right. and higher inflation. Right. We're not so sure about that. So, so for us, it's more about weighing the risk and reward as opposed to trying to figure out like, well, we think we should be in high duration bonds because we're going to go into a recession. We don't think about it that way. It's for us, it's more weighing the risk and reward of if thinking through some outcomes of okay, if if rates fall from here, higher duration bonds are going to do good. 
But if we're sitting in short-term bonds and clipping those coupons at 4.5%, we're fine doing that. That's the kind of thinking as a, or, as opposed to, oh, if rates keep going higher from here, what's the, you know, what's the bigger risk? So that's kind of the way that we think about it as opposed to making an interest rate bet one way or another. And, and that's kind of the way that we, we view this as in some of the, in some of these, like you mentioned, we, we, we really just don't know how they're going to react to these, these different changes. And, and a lot of it could be, uh, you know, investors end up throwing the baby out with the bathwater and overreacting to the downside with some of these products because they just say, get me out of here. I want to be in something else. And it doesn't react to, you know, anywhere close to how you think it should. And just my two cents on the recession I flew from JFK to Phoenix on Monday morning this week and uh, got into Phoenix around 10 or 10.30 or something. The airport was absolutely jam-packed, you know? People are still spending money, and right? people were like, you know, going, I yeah. mean, not just going to like Chicago or Dallas or something. There were lines of people waiting to get on planes to go to Hawaii, to go to Cabo, People getting off planes, people fighting to get on them. It was like, you know, spring break for the 60-something set or something. <laughs> I mean, it was just a... And then you go, you look at all like the, the kiosks and the restaurants and everything in the Phoenix airport. There's just, there's lines of people waiting to get in. There's not enough servers, obviously. You know, it just, it just seems like there's, there's, there's not enough people to do the work, you know? Yeah, that, that that's the whole thing is that we're in a weird, it's almost going to take, I think, some job losses and a recession to to get people to slow down their spending maybe because they put it off for, for so many years there in the pandemic. So that, that that is part of the reason why I think it's it's a little more challenging this time to know for sure what's going to happen. People are still spending that, that pandemic money that they were sitting on, in other words. It's true. Yeah, we had a lot of excess savings and people have been spending that down. And we love to spend money in this country. We love it. It's one of our favorite things to do. And if you think people are just going to spend a little bit and take one trip and be like, okay, I'm going to sit back and that was good enough. I think people are doubling down and they they, they get a taste of it. And they want to just spend Right, more. let's go for it, in other words. Yep. <laughs> okay, Jeff, that's my two cents. Back to you, man. Yes, sir. All right, Ben, I know you're a Michigan guy. So I got to assume you you probably got a Detroit Lions tattoo and a Barry Sanders poster in your bedroom and all that good stuff. <laughs> <laughs> my hero and, yes and, and you cry every football season but uh we had uh, we got four teams left here in the in the nfl playoffs we got the 49ers at the eagles and the bengals at the kansas city chiefs i gotta tell you last week we had a guy on from betterment and he picked uh in the super bowl the eagles and the chiefs and they both are still alive so uh what's the what's the outlook what's the big thinking there from the director of institutional asset management at ritholtz <laughs> On the well, Super Bowl. you know, we, we have legal betting here now, so I, I put I put a little money in my FanDuel account, and I've been betting each week. My, my eight-year-old daughter is finally into football for the first time, and All each, right. her and I created a little uh, uh, bracket, and we've been picking the games each week. And this one of the biggest biases in investing is the recency bias, right? You look at what mm -hmm. just happened in the past, and you think it's going to happen in the future. So if I'm putting on my recency bias hat, and I'm looking at last week, I'm picking the Bengals and the Eagles to win this week because they looked like the best two teams last week. So... Uh, if you're a contrarian, maybe you'd pick the Chiefs and the 49ers because they didn't look as good and they maybe have some injuries. So that, that's that's the way I'm looking at it is uh, if I'm a, I'm a momentum player, I'm picking the Eagles and the Bengals. If I'm a contrarian value investor, I'm picking the Chiefs and the 49ers maybe. So what are you? I, I, I'm, I'm on the Bengals and the Eagles. Let's do it. Okay. All right. 
I like it. I like it. Um, momentum. Momentum rules for Ben Carlson, <laughs> Ritholt. Hey, Ben, thanks a lot for being here. And and again, I want to tell everyone that you got you to gotta check out the podcast, uh, Portfolio Rescue. It's it's an entertaining, engaging, and uh, I've become a regular listener because I'm, I'm learning stuff. So thank you very much for that, Ben. Appreciate that. Thanks, guys. All right. Thanks, Jeff. Launching every Monday. It's another episode of the Investment News Podcast. We want to thank our special guest this week, Ben Carlson of Ritholtz Wealth Management. We also want to thank our producer, Angelica Hester, and our sponsor this week, LPL Financial. You can find the podcast, of course, at investmentnews.com. You can look for it uh, at all of the places you get your podcasts. That's Apple, Spotify, Google Play, and Stitcher. Please leave us a review on Apple. Follow us on Spotify. You can reach out to Jeff Benjamin on Twitter uh, via his handle, which is at Benji Ryder. Mine is at BD News Guy. Stay tuned. We'll be talking to you next week.